hi everyone. Welcome to the Genetic Engineering Society Center's weekly seminar, the colloquium. My name is Don Rodriguez Ford, and I co-facilitate with Jan Baltzigar. Uh, and we're very excited to have our in-person speaker today. And before uh, we get started, I just wanted to leave this space open for any updates or announcements, anything those that are online or in-person would like to share. And while you're thinking about anything that you'd like to share, news to these events, also a reminder that next Tuesday is a wellness day, so we will not be meeting um, here. We won't have colloquium. And then the following colloquium on the 20th will be uh, Dr. Uh, Kirsty Wissig from Australia National University talking on Indigenous governance um, in uh, biotech, and that will be Zoom only. So the next two Tuesdays, we will not be meeting in person. We we will be skipping one and then we will be Zoom only. So just as a reminder for those that are here. And of course, I'm gonna take one more minute to remind everybody about this amazing GES minor fellowship that we have our applications uh, open until March 15th for preferred uh, entry or preferred application. And um, that would be starting in August, it's open to master's and PhD students in social sciences, natural sciences, and the humanities. Uh, so please, if you haven't uh, spread the word, or if you know any great graduate students that you think would be interested in receiving a GDS uh, minor, uh, please send them my way. And soon Fred and I will be working on a Q&A via Zoom for those that would like to ask us some questions. So we'll send out information about that as well. Um, and so that's my update. Uh, does anyone else have an update? Okay, great. Well, I'm gonna ask uh, our Ag Biology student in Applied Ecology, Nick Lotion, to introduce our speaker today. So I'll give it away to Nick. Hi, everyone. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Ando. I was like, he's an ecologist focused, uh, and he focuses research on insect population and community ecology and also related to ecological risk assessment for invasive species and genetically engineered organisms, as well as science policy. Uh, he received a BS in biology from Brown University and his PhD in ecology from Cornell. And then he went and completed a postdoc in Japan and then came back into the second postdoc appointment at Cornell. Uh, he spent most of his career uh, at the Department of Entomology at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities where he was this distinguished McKnight University professor. He also has an extensive international experience where he's been a researcher with the Brazilian Agricultural Research Corporation and was a fellow at the Bellagio Center of the Rockefeller Foundation in Italy and was an expert for the World Trade Organization and uh, the chair for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services on a planning committee related to the recovery team for the endangered Carner Blue Butterfly. And he also advised the Vatican's Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. So I had to write it down. I was like, you know, so many different things and so much international experience, I had to crank it out. Um, last summer, he actually joined us here at NC State as the head of the Department of Applied Ecology. Uh, and that is the department that I'm a part of. So I figured best that I introduce him. And today he will be giving his presentation on Ecological and Evolutionary Perspectives on Genetic Engineering by Discussing Key Events from the 1980s to the 2000s. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. And uh, um, please, uh, if you have any questions as I'm going, uh, 
don't hesitate to, to ask us. If you feel a little hesitant, just raise your hand a little bit. No, hopefully I'll see that. Um, so I'm going to talk uh, primarily about ecological and evolutionary issues, nothing about food safety. I'm going to focus primarily on U.S. and other developed country issues. Uh, I could, you know, talk for another couple of hours about international stuff in developed developing countries, uh, but I, I just want to focus it here on some of the what, what I consider some of the major accomplishments of ecology and evolution being involved in this issue over the years. So the first decade that I want to talk about is the 1980s. I'm calling this the regulation of GMO decade. And this sort of stems from the mid-1970s when the famous Asilomar conference was held by molecular biologists who were concerned about essentially the safety of recombinant DNA in laboratories. Uh, but once that sort of got publicized, other people started wondering what's going to happen when they get re when uh, recombinant DNA products are released into the environment. And this really starts in the early 1980s. And one of the first activities, uh, as I was just mentioning, was funded by the US EPA Office of uh, Research and Development, early 1980s by uh, uh, a forward-thinking scientist in that vision named Art Stern, who funded a big study on the and on what are the potential environmental issues associated with the release of genetic engineered organisms into the environment. Uh, that was funded at Cornell University uh, and resulted in this publication five years later. That's that around. Uh, and, um, that's when I first got involved. It was in that second smoke doc. I came back from Japan, I didn't have anything to do. And so I got that. It was to look at uh, the, uh, essentially the biology and first of all, microorganisms. And it was a very short thing. I was thinking, well, this is not really what I really do, uh, but oh, this sounds like an interesting project. And when I got done, I was wondering, should I even pursue this more? It seemed like it was a very novel type issue. Uh, it hadn't reached very much uh, public uh, concern. Uh, and one of my uh, friends and colleagues asked, well, you know, it's not your major area, but how much effort is going to take to keep up and keep involved in it? You know, at that time, early 1980s, I figured not much. <laughs> Nobody's doing anything in the so I continued with it, and that's sort of the decision that kept me involved in greater and greater levels over the years. That's my personal side. <laughs> so the thing about this report is, is that it focuses primarily on microbes, because in the early 1980s, uh, those were the organisms that could be successfully transformed. And while there was a lot of work on plants, there was still it was only during the 1980s that we started to see plant transformation become possible. So during this time, following Asilomar, uh, the, there were a lot of arguments about are GMOs going to be safe in the environment? And there were a number of what were called generic safety arguments. So uh, one, you, you hear recurring even today is that uh, these organisms 
are really just like domesticated species. You're just modifying corn. We can't make corn dangerous. So, you know, everything we do with corn is not going to be it's essentially what we call the domesticated species model. And I'll, uh, I won't address that one specifically right now, but I'll get back to that. There are many others, um, and I'm just going to review a few of them. These are all reviewed uh, in detail by Phil Regal in a 1986 paper, which I think was pretty influential in undercutting all of the generic safety arguments that were being presented at that time. So one argument was that you know any GMO that's released in the environment, its expansion will be inhibited by the biotic and physical factors in that environment. And that, that would, uh, was, was referred to as the biotic or regulatory model. And as we know, uh, we can point to lots of invasive species, but that's not true. So, uh, uh, well, it was, uh, I'm just going to say some of these. We know now that many of them have problems, uh, but they were seriously argued in the early 1980s as being significant generic safety arguments. Another one is, is that, you know, when we put in the, the uh, uh, recombinant DNA, it'll disrupt the optimized genome. This is what Phil Regal called the untuned engine model. This is that, you know, we have this optimally, uh, this organism, this genome that's optimized under evolution. And so anything we do to it, we'll untune it. And therefore, uh, it won't be good. Another one uh, is one that he called uh, the pigment pole altered model. Sort of similar is that the novelties will be a major burden. And so, therefore, we don't have to worry about any of the novelties. And then, one that's really kind of interesting is one that he called the bank bankrupt venture model. And that's sort of this the idea that evolution has already tried everything. And so, you know. Since evolution has tried everything, we don't really have to worry. You know, what we're doing is something that's already been tried and been successful anyways. So uh, the interesting way that uh, Phil addressed this one is to point out that if you look at the number of heterozygous loci in one person, there's about 6,700 heterozygous loci in a person. And if you then sort of multiply out how many different genotypes that could produce. Uh, calculated, that would be 10 to the 2017th power of possible genotypes. Anybody know how many atoms there are in the universe? <laughs> it's 10 to the 70th. That's what's estimated. So this is just to point out that evolution has not tried. It's only a very small part of the available. But anyways, these were actually the very important arguments that were being uh, uh, proposed during that period. And so I think one of the major successes was to come at these generic safety arguments. And what resulted is uh, what is called the case-by-case approach to the regulation of biotechnology. <laughs> and resulted in uh, what 
in the U.S. is called the Coordinated Framework, which came out in 1986. In Europe, at the same point in time, there was a patchwork of national regulatory systems, which were really quite diverse. In the U.S., um, it relied on the EPA under the Toxic Substance Control Act and FIFRA, the uh, Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Modernicide Act. The FDA had several um, um, places that they were involved, but it was primarily related to food safety, except in one instance. And the USDA was regulating things under the plant, plant protection act. Now, the thing that uh, people recognize is that the uh, FIFRA had to be sort of toxic substance control tests. Uh, and for uh, USDA, it had to be something that could be uh, potentially uh, an organism that could harm uh, environment in relation to uh, especially agriculture. FD, so, um, and then the, the other limiting issue had to do with when does the Toxic Substances Control Act become an issue? Because the Toxic Substance Control Act is a notification act. So basically, if you're wanting to uh, release toxic substances, you have to notify EPA. EPA has, I can't remember, 60 days or something to decide you can't do it. Get reasons, so it's a it's a notification system. Now, one of the things that if you think about these things, um, what happened in this stage was what happens to genetically engineered fish. So many of you are not familiar with this issue because they're not plants, so they don't fall under the uh, EP plant protection act, and they, you know they might affect aquatic plants. But a lot of them aren't herbivores. Um, they're not toxic substances. So they ended up being regulated as food additives by the FDA. And they're still sort of in a limbo uh, because of that, because of the coordinated framework. Nobody really wanted to get them. So that's sort of an interesting technical issue that I've so, like I said, uh, the focus during this was on microbes. <laughs> and as all of you know, one of the first ones that came out was uh, the X minus bacterium, which was proposed to uh, reduce uh, um, the freezing that occurs in unexpected frost events on uh, crops. And uh, during the past several years, I think it's now was. Did something here and it caught maybe it was um, and this involves a pseudomonas syringe. And I got involved with this because the Office of Technology Assessment wanted somebody to look at you know what were the risks involved in this. And while there were some interesting aspects associated with uh, the ecology of X minus, and one of them had to do with what kind of experiments do you conduct. To determine whether the ice minus bacterium can actually displace the ice plus bacteria. So if you actually use it, it will outcompete. And uh, th this was interesting from, for me because it turns out that most of those experiments were done in flasks that were shaken. 
So that led to a complete mixture of everybody. And it turned out that you could actually displace the positives with the negatives under those conditions. But in those one or two studies where they didn't mix the flask, they let things settle out, uh, the ice minus didn't displace the ice plus. So that would be more like a leaf surface where everything is on the surface. And then in order to compete, we have to contact with them. So if you have a little bunch here and a little bunch here, these guys have to sort of not get over here to displace them. And that was what wasn't happening. So that was kind of an interesting issue. How do you evaluate the effectiveness of The other side that uh, still plagues a lot of these issues today is um, suppose it works, how valuable will it be to native growers in Northern California that uh, in what it was aimed to be? And so with, uh, uh, in collaboration with a um, plant pathologist who studied diseases, uh, we investigated, you know, what is, uh, how, essentially how efficacious could this be? And what it turned out is, is that under most conditions, it wasn't going to pay off as in terms of a, a good technology for agriculture. So I say this is a recurring problem, these technologies, and then, you know, you could go to that extent of, you know, what if it works, how useful will it be? And those kinds of analyses still aren't done as frequently as I think they should be. The other uh, one that came up very early on was Clavobacter xylai. And this is a bacterium that is an endophyte, um, and, uh, the idea at this point is, is that we wanted to be able to kill insects feeding plants, feeding up plants. And so the company engineered with the xylite to express Bt toxins. And then what they showed is they could inoculate corn plants and the clavobacter would grow inside the corn plant. And in fact, it could protect the corn plant from uh, one of the major insects on uh, European corn bulb. So then it became an issue as to, you know, what happens uh, if it's released in the environment. And of course, one of the issues that is very important is, you know, what kind of dispersal process does it have? And to what extent can it escape and get into other places that you don't want? So this, this is a very important issue with regard to the microbe. And, you know, there's a bunch of literature on dispersal of rhizobium which is the nitrogen-sensing bacterium in legumes. And it basically shows that rhizobium doesn't move very much. So this kind of evidence would suggest that you release a bacterium into the environment. If it gets in the soil, it's not going to move very much. But on the other hand, uh, based on some of the data that's in that uh, report that I just uh, put out, is, is that uh, um, there were many instances of basically this red stuff coming into Scandinavian snow uh, during the winter. And it turned out it was all originating from the Arabian Peninsula. So that there's a lot of movement of things. And if any of you have seen the, the latest movie on Netflix, Nyad, at the beginning, you know, he asked her to stick out her tongue. And it's like, oh, it's sand from the Sahara. 
Yeah, so it's that kind of thing. There's a lot of movement that's associated with windblown dusts. <clears throat> so then when I was reviewing this, I thought, well, let's look at see where Claybacter xylai has been studied and look at its genetic diversity. And then you can calculate FSTs, which are measures of how differentiated populations are. And it turned out that if you sample all over the world, there's no FSP, zero, which suggests you know, either it's very recently evolved or and, and somehow got everywhere, or it disperses a lot. So this became an issue that uh, how do you evaluate these kinds of things? And uh, and this was going forward up to a certain up to that point. And then I think there was an issue is to, to what extent is the risk assessment done properly? And so then it sort of got put back into that uh, place. But at the same time, that was about the time when um, corn was possible to transform and regenerate. And you know, at the time, people were looking into bacteria and things like that. They figured that the regeneration, especially, uh, would not be solved for at least 10, 15 years. Um, and it was solved in less than five. And because it was the regeneration that was the problem, they could transform themselves, but you couldn't get it to regenerate. So that led then to a completely different uh, set of issues. <clears throat> Oh, and I should have uh, circulated this one. This is uh, this was the issue of prospects for biological and physical containment of genetically engineered organisms, with the focus a lot on microbes uh, back in the 1980s. <clears throat> so that's sort of I think the the major things that were happening during the 1980s, and the uh, key outcomes were that we developed a in the US, a coordinated framework for its regulation based on a case-by-case -case approach. So everyone that wanted to propose something would get evaluated. So I think that was a major success of the uh, work by, done by ecologists at that point. So the 1990s, uh, I characterize the 1990s as the decade of the commercialization of GMOs. Um, but when we look at that commercialization, I think there are two elements to keep in mind, uh, or three elements. First of all, the commercialization was primarily the US. The second point is that it was primarily single locus traits um, rather than multi-locus traits. Uh, and uh, third, this is that the risk assessments were primarily based on conventional models. So that's sort of how how things happen. And the reason things really took off is because once you were able to, once people were able to transform plants, first, first major one comes in as cotton. It's a very big uh, um, uh, product, in, especially in the southeastern part of the US. But it was the transformation and regeneration of maize that really opened things up. Because that seed market is a $2 billion a year seed market. Basically, between maize and soybean, you, you got you know, almost all of the seed market of the United States in terms of its value. And so this presented a lot of commercial potential. You know, while 
tomato, the flavor stable is kind of the first one uh, commercialized. Um, it's these ones that, that were in these larger crops that really uh, generated the um, interest and focus of the, um, of the industry. Now, the consequence of this is that there was a flood of applications to release genetically engineered organisms. You know, all these people uh, transforming the plants and wanting to introduce them under the case-by-case -case model. You know, every time you wanted to do a release, you had to apply for a permit. And so, and because they were plants, uh, and uh, they, they were either regulated by EPA under FITRA or by the USDA. And if they weren't specifically about controlling pests, then they were regulated by USDA. So things like, uh, this is when terminator technology was being developed. So it's a technology so that people couldn't save the seeds and they would have to buy the seeds all. So there were a lot of uh, applications uh, testing this technology. And um, what, what it did is it flooded the USDA with applications. And so what this resulted in is um, that the, 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 the office didn't have enough staff to evaluate things on a case-by-case -case basis. And they couldn't just like, you know, they, they were basically running out the same evaluation, but they had to modify it and do other things to it in order to make it so it didn't seem like they were just rubber stamping. Um, and uh, this is an issue that uh, uh, Terry Medley, who was also here, uh, was uh, uh, had considerable concern about. And at that time, uh, I was serving on a USDA committee, uh, replacing Fred, who was on there before me. Um, and uh, the issue was, you know, how do we deal with this flood of uh, applications? And what uh, it became is the what's called the notification system under USDA. Now, the thing is, is that EPA also had lots of applications, but EPA under FITRA had could could issue experimental use permits, which were was essentially a way of dealing with the flood. I mean, you could issue permits for small-scale use, uh, and so then you didn't have to do the large-scale uh, risk assessment of the entire country. <clears throat> so in USDA, the issue was to move to a notification system, and what this resulted in is sort of a reevaluation of what it meant to be a case, okay, because if you no longer had to think of each one as a separate case, then how do you bundle the cases together? And uh, this, this led to um, a lot of discussion within this committee. Uh, I was the chair of that subcommittee. And uh, so it was things like, you know, if it's the same, if it's the same genetic uh, modification and the same plants, and there, that became an issue with the same inbred lines, is it the same species? Uh, so we had a lot of discussions as to what, would, what is similar enough to be considered the same case. And uh, I think it's been pretty successful as a notification system. Um, and I won't go into the details of, of exactly all that, but 
Um, there's one element that I will say that uh, Harry and Medley pulled over our eyes. And I've talked about this before. And this is, uh, and and now I probably wouldn't fall for it because of all the stuff that's in the news about some people being in, you know, in federal courts and what you have to what you have to do to prove things. And it had to do with intention. So one of the clauses in the notification system has to do with whether or not the genetically engineered plant is intended to be used uh, uh, as, a, as a pharmaceutical. Because this was a very important consideration because people couldn't grow, people couldn't make corn produce products that could be used as pharmaceuticals. And so we nobody wanted to see those exempted and put into a notification system. Uh, but uh, what I what I didn't realize then, and what the committee didn't realize, is that when you say intended to be used for a pharmaceutical, it meant that if you grew it, grew it and intended to sell it to a pharmaceutical company, it was not intended to be used as a pharmaceutical. It was intended to be used as a pharmaceutical feedstock, and it's different. So none of the pharmaceutical crops are regulated uh, by USDA now. There all going in under the notification system. And that, that has been a concern and uh, the Union of Concerned Scientists developers full report around that, which I think still stands today. The issue, there are several issues that mitigate the concern is that the cropping areas for these things are very small. You don't need to have much area to grow what you need. And so that's that's been one of the important factors. But then, of course, with the diversity of pollen and things like that, there has to be some way of uh, containing that. The other factor that's coming on is, as you probably know, with this uh, interdisciplinary building coming on here, they're planning on having a system where you could uh, have um, design uh, synth uh, biochemical synthesis. Um, without having to go through all the details of, this, of the steps. And so there may be ways in which we no longer have to rely on plant biosynthesis uh, pathways, and then they all become chemical synthesis pathways instead. But that's sort of in the future when it's fun to see those. David, a question. Yeah. How much is that actually going on now? Using plants to produce plants. That is uh, that. Uh, last time I looked was uh, uh, over a decade ago, and all that is considered confidential business information. So you can't find out if it really is something for pharmaceuticals. Yeah, because you don't hear about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it probably still confidential business information. So you can only guess by who is doing it, but you know that's hard to say because it's not the pharmaceutical companies that are involved here. <clears throat> so during this time, like I said, there there, there was uh, the the risk assessment process sort of stabilized somewhat. Uh, there were basically three general areas that were being investigated, non-target effects. Um, however, the uh, approaches were 
primarily um, conventional toxicology tests. And in fact, during this decade, uh, Monsanto established a, a high throughput method for non-target testing that met the requirements, especially in EPA, which, you know, honeybees, chicken, few other species, and goldfish. So uh, it was possible to, to develop that. The issue of gene spread uh, became very uh, um, important and uh, it still is a problem um, today. And then the issue of resistance evolution uh, sort of became the focus. This is an issue that had been uh, a concern for several decades before, primarily with respect to insecticides, somewhat with fungicides and somewhat with herbicides. But nothing had been done about it in terms of regula regulation. And it was only in the late 90s that EPA decided that they could regulate this. Uh, and part of the resistance in the regulation was that, that in my opinion, there's the political power of the uh, chemical companies uh, creates some resistance in regulating pesticides. And the plants were not at that time associated with the chemical companies, they were all seed companies. So I think there was that. Support. But also I think an important factor was, it seemed like there was something reasonable that could be done. And I think that was also a very important factor. But, and so these three issues then become sort of the focus of the risk assessment. And that also I think is due to the, the work of uh, evolutionary biologists and uh, ecologists in many different disciplines you get those sort of on the table and a focus of the risk assessment. So <clears throat> the last decade I want to talk about is the 2000s and I call this the uh, consolidation and uh, revisions of risk assessment because as I point out um, the decade sort of opens up with a bang. We have the Losi et al. publication in Nature in 1999 on the effects of um, Bt corn pollen on monarch butterflies. And then we have in 2001, the Quisco article about gene flow of, uh, of maize in Mexico. And, uh, you know, these, these were, it's interesting because while the basic idea, you know, that these things could, that, that maize pollen could be affecting other species, oh, this was clearly something that uh, people thought could be going on. The Losi paper caught a lot of people by surprise. And the reason is, is, is that when we think about non-target effects, we have in the EPA system, we have a you know, a few species that we have to test. And if it passes those, then we consider that that's good enough. Um, so I think it's a springtail, I can't name them all, springtail, a fish, a, a bird, a bee, and a few other species. And so it's pretty clear that taxonomically it's not getting everything. And then when you look at uh, the um, USDA and also FIFRA, there's a consultation done with uh, the Endangered Species Act people. 
And so, you know, a species that are things, you know, organisms that are potential endangered species also come under consideration. But, you know, monarchs were not an endangered species. They're not on the list of you know, what you have to test. And so they slipped through the cracks. And, you know, it sort of was, you know, there was a period where people were pointing fingers about, you know, who didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, but if you think about it objectively, the things that people said that you had to do didn't include monarchs. And why would one even consider monarchs? I mean, what is so special about monarchs? Why did people get so upset about monarchs? Charismatic. Charismatic and what happened? What's that? The migration. Yeah, well, that's part of the charismatic. Not everybody knows about what's that? Every kid grows in his school. That's a big one. Every kid grows down in school. Like charismatic, you think the butterfly. That's yeah. And so it's like a huge number of Americans know about monarchs and really like them because you know in school you can grow them up. And then at the end of the year, you have the big release, and all the kids are so happy about it, right? So they have such a very positive. So these, these sorts of organisms are important culturally. And well, the idea of culturally significant organisms hasn't penetrated into the risk assessment process uh, formally. Um, we know that we do need to consider anything that is culturally significant. Depends on cultural, cultural significance. So that sort of upended things, and it's still something that we struggle with. But it sort of sort of points to the the gaps in the, in the process and how and one way that they need to build. The Quiston Chappelle argument uh, paper rather uh, came under a lot of argumentation, and I think it's when I look at that, it's mainly because they speculated that the genes in maize move. And the evidence for that was circumstantial. Um, and so the criticisms were primarily levied at that. And the, and, the, 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 and, and because the paper was criticized, uh, people thought the whole paper was a problem. So the fact that they found the genes in um, land races, in my reading of that literature, nobody disputed that point. They all disputed whether the genes move uh, within the genome. But then when they talk about it, they talk about the genes moving. And so then it sounds like they're criticizing the whole thing. Um, but that led to a study um, by NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. There's a uh, clause, the, uh, I think it's, what is, what is the clause? I can't remember. It's, it's an addendum that was agreed to by the parties in order to get NAFTA passed. And it was an environmental agreement. And so NAFTA then convened a uh, study to look at means and biodiversity in Mexico. And, you know, this is the uh, out output of that, that work. But that's something that uh, basically the NAFTA response was, and with all those claimers that they're not speaking for any of the governments right here, was that in fact there was strong evidence for gene movement 
uh, to land races uh, in, in Mexico. And the follow-up studies that were done by several people, including Allison Snow, uh, sort of prove it for sure. So anyways, that then sort of indicated, and it's still an issue in, with regards to the use of G genetic engineering in, use in Mexico. Mexico still has not approved that, uh, basically because nobody has figured out how to deal with the movement of the genes. However, it's also known that there are truckloads of maize seeds crossing the Texas border into Mexico every year. So at least in northern Mexico, there seems to be uh, a lot of uh, illegal movement. Much of the Teosintes, however, in, in southern and uh, um, central Mexico. So it's not clear how much is getting down there. Anyways, this issue of gene flow still remains an unresolved issue um, in the nations. So on the uh, side of the uh, in the, the the period of consolidation, this is where basically seed companies consolidated, 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 and then chemical and seed companies consolidated. So some some examples uh, from my part of uh, Minnesota, we had one company called Northrop King, which was one of the three larger seed companies in the state. So Northrop King was bought by Sandoz, and then Sandoz, along with Steve Agaigi, merged to form Novartis, and then Novartis, uh, was a Swiss company, uh, merged with AstraZeneca, a UK company, to form Syngenta, and Syngenta has been purchased by ChemChina. So we now have tons of seed companies all in one company. Another one is a uh, famous uh, company in the Southeast, Delta Pine, was bought by Monsanto, which was bought by Bayer. So, and so now it's a big seed chemical company. And then uh, one of the biggest seed companies in the US, Pioneer, was bought by Japan, which was bought by Dow Agrosciences, and was spun off recently as Corteva. So, you know, all these things are constantly changing the, uh, the, the industry. But basically what it means is that the seed companies and the chemical companies are now together in pretty much every instance in the United States. And that is basically means that uh, the seeds can be designed to use whatever agrochemicals and they can be sold in ways that only certain agrochemicals can be used with them. So it's ways of selling packages of inputs as opposed to different types of inputs. And so that's, I think, one of the things that we're sort of still dealing with today. So those are sort of the major things that I wanted to cover here. And there's still lots of other things, but I just want to review. So there's the case-by-case -case system that got established. I think this is a major accomplishment, and then a redefinition of the case, which becomes very important, which also requires a lot of scientific discussion. There's the issue of what are the kinds of risks that need to be evaluated, and then the broadening of risk, but at the same time, we're dealing with commercialization and consolidation. 
So it's a very challenging environment, but I think ecology and evolution has uh, contributed a lot. And then the last thing I wanted to do was circulate this one, which Fred was contributing to. This is about how do we deal with the uh, insecticide resistance issue. So I didn't see any hands, but any questions? Um, so you were talking about how the seed companies and the chemical companies are consolidating to sell some of these package deals. Um, do you also see that as a way around some of the public perception in some of these names? Um, you know, Monsanto has a kind of negative image, but may or may not be as well known. So the question is, is the consolidation between the seed companies and the um, chemical companies, um, does that sort of, uh, because some of the chemical companies are not as well known, does that sort of shield some of the criticisms? Um, that's kind of hard. Uh, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it's, it's possible, but I think sort of in a broader scope of things, the the, the issues have become sort of normalized. And I think that may be a bigger part of why uh, the um, controversies don't seem to be quite as quite as uh, intense. I mean, back in the, even in the 2000s, uh, it was virtually impossible to stake a, a middle ground on any of these issues. Um, you know, any, anytime, uh, anytime I saw people doing that, they either didn't get too involved, or if they uh, on the on some of the core controversies, or else that that that, or else they got polarized right away. Now, I would say that the uh, insecticide resistance management issue did not go along that same path, um, and I think it's because there was greater uniformity. In, uh, that issue needed to be dealt with and that there are ways to deal with it. But on the non-targeted gene flow issue, you know, you, there were clearly camps. But I think the normalization is a major factor. I don't know that the shielding is that much. Because here, you know, it's normalized. In developed countries, it's, you know, they're still sort of seen as those seed companies. Yeah. Uh, you talked a little bit about, I guess, the 2000s being a little bit successful because it was broadening the risk parameters that were kind of incorporated. So, I mean, we're looking at gene flow and incorporating things like the monarch butterfly into the non-target analysis. But do you see any need for more broadening of like what parameters might be missing in the current regulatory system? Uh, I, I think... I think that the issue of culturally significant species is, you know, well, you know, there's, it, it's clear that that's an idea, but to actually incorporate it within a regulatory system, I don't think that's been done. I do think that the, one of the indirect effects of this monarch thing is, is that when, you know, when, when we deal with uh, wildlife conservation, you know, the, the focus is, 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 uh, broadened to be, I think, more than just sport species and endangered species. And I think that uh, this, 
this sort of thing helped contribute towards a, a broadening of things to be looking at. The gene flow issue, I think, has still not been resolved very well. And uh, the basic approaches are to try to, uh, in the United States, uh, the gene flow issue is resolved primarily around some legal um, determinations that the companies are not liable for the gene flow. So, you know, it's not a great way to resolve the issue, but that's sort of how the U.S. has resolved it. Now, in other countries, it's not so clear that that's the resolution. But then, you know, except for China and uh, parts of Brazil, um, there aren't that many countries that have a large amount of GMOs planted. Yeah, Expanding on the gene flow, as we move into to the, the new genetic techniques era of generating GMO and GE and all, all of this new generation and some of the moves from the regulatory agency is sort of softening regulation around these, saying that they're equivalent to conventional breeding techniques. Do you see an increased risk or gene flow into like areas of origin and, and high diversity where there are land races? Like, do you, do you think that this is, could become more of, a, of an existential threat to these pockets of, of diversity? Well, I think the short answer is, is yes. Um, but, you know, like in North America, we have a, a limited number of species that were domesticated here. And in terms of centers of origin, you know, we don't really have centers anymore because of the change in the landscape. Uh, so, you know, a lot of these areas are in tropical, tropical areas and uh, other developing countries. And the penetration has not been as great in these areas. Now, I think the one that is key and will have a big uh, impact depending on how it goes in the future is the maize issue in Mexico because Mexico is still under pressure to allow GM maize throughout the country and they have still resisted that. So um, I think the uh, current administration still is applying some pressure, but not as much as uh, it was um, in the early 2000s. Do you, do you see rice being a big issue? Rice is primarily inbred. So the dispersal is not, not, as, not as great. And that's why uh, the issue there, I think, has to do with seed saving. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, whether, to what extent did uh, GM rice displaces seed saving? But right now, the ones that are commercialized in, say, southern China and flung over into the Southeast Asia, those are all being saved, even though they weren't developed for that purpose. Yeah. In, in, in the 1990s, there was a lot of discussion of um, animal transgenics. I was wondering if that was uh, discussed along with uh, new groups that were working on plant regulations or was that a parallel track? 
Well, that's where the fish one really comes comes in because that that was the one that was sort of uh, in the forefront. Pharmaceutical companies were trying to make milk with drugs. That... Well, there there was yeah, but those yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so with with regards to things like the um, milk products, there there's there's also this whole area of uh, bioreactors for producing new chemicals with genetically engineered organisms. And all of those were developed in ways that the containment of the species, like the containment of the cow, the containment of the bioreactor was the primarily primary approach so that the organisms weren't getting into the environment generally. Fish, on the other hand, were a completely different story. And, uh, and uh, I have to say that there's still issues about about that. You know, the 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 thing that people were relying on was the idea of producing triploids so that they wouldn't be viable. But uh, with fish, it turns out that that can break down, and so the containment methods really weren't weren't the proposed containment methods were pretty clear that they wouldn't work. And so, and then in aquaculture. Which is another way of trying to contain them. There's always in our culture a lot of leakage, and so it, that's where uh, I think a lot of this is this uh, uh, created controversies that were difficult to resolve. And uh, I know that there's still a bunch of this going on now. I just don't know the details. Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to the. So you have experience with sort of politics and as you talk about the consolidation everything there's sort of different agents that push back or for kinds of regulation so it was striking me that you know one of the major arguments for mexican band race maize is that it's a culturally significant organism i mean there's a genetic argument about maintaining diversity in stock but that's not what's driving it in mexican politics um so do you think that um the mexican the pressure up to introduce GMO into Mexican corn will be a hindrance to getting other culturally significant organism legislation or regulation because the lawyers will immediately go for, you know, now you've got two regulatory things you've got to go through. So you see, you know, the way they, they intersect that way for certain crops and land race being the biggest one. But... Boy. I, 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 don't know. I don't know how to answer that, but <laughs> uh, uh, you're right that the land race thing is is a big uh, issue. It's, it's cultural, but it's also a production yeah. issue. Uh, and 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 part of the reason that there's so much um, um, resistance to GMAs in those parts of Mexico. Is, is that you have to buy the seeds and water them. And that's sort of a recurring theme that's occurring throughout developing countries, is that if you have to keep buying the seed over and over again, there's a lot of resistance to that. And in fact, uh, in a lot of countries that I've seen, it's, it's perceived as a uh, neo-colonialism. On the other hand, from the seed companies, you know, they want to control the seeds of the world. So that's why they're sort of uh, approaching that, that way. 
because if you can't keep selling it, then you don't control it. So I agree there's a there's this uh, conflict. I think on the Mexican side, you know, because there's so many people relying on land leases, I think it'd be difficult for the government to agree. And especially because it would undercut the um the the, the seed saving systems as well. So the US can apply a lot of pressure. It's going to require a very different government from Mexico to succumb to that pressure. Yeah, Fred. That's just saying I mean, the cultural thing is very important. And I agree. It's like, you know, it, it, it's so funny because, of course, we're pushing that on Mexico, uh, but yet we're so concerned about the money butterfly, which had, you know, comparatively little importance compared in terms of the networks and ecology. But the cultural thing, it's really kind of sticky, right? Because it's also, you know, in Italy or in France, right, in the argument made that culturally we don't like the idea of a transition. And you know, that's that's not because it's not natural. And in the same way, in Mexico, it's been kind of interesting because we bring a lot of hybrid seed in. And there's certainly introgression from the hybrids into the land races, but there's no cultural concern about that. So it really is about the trans gene, it seems to me. Right, because you know we've been doing this for a long time. The hybrids definitely—I don't know what the word is—but it certainly infiltrates the land races. The other side to that is that way back, I think it was 1997, uh, Alan Ruskin and I had a, a meeting in Nicaragua. We talked to the land race farmers, and their whole thing is, is once that stuff is out there, if it benefits land race farmers, they will introduce it themselves. You don't need to talk to them about it, right? Because they, but the bottom line is that those traits don't help them enough for them to bother doing it. Whether it's herbicide resistance, it's totally useless to that. And BP, you know, it, it all depends on really what, how much damage is really being done by the right doctors to them compared to the So anyway, I just think it's an important, it's a hard question and, you know, some countries take socioeconomic stuff into consideration, but the U.S. has always taken that stand for months. I, I don't. I just have comment. Yeah, the, the issue of efficacy is was really a crucial one for small scale farmers, like many other places, and and um, so maybe maybe uh, I'd be willing to give another talk on international dimensions <laughs> here, but. Uh, Good. Because remember, he said that. As you know, European corn bar is a big issue in Mexico. Right. Right. Yes. So uh, the, the maize varieties that control it yeah. really aren't the right ones, anyways. Yeah. And on that point, I'm going to have to cut us off because we're already over time. Thank you so much. And just a point of interest, we will have Eric Feldman. About the, the salmon GM later in the semester. April 9th, April 9th. Yeah. So um, if that interests you, we'll have a further discussion with that. Okay, remember no colloquium next week and then online the week after that. Thank you everyone for coming. Thanks for